You're listening to the Live Free Now podcast, bringing you the news, views, tips, and tools you can use to live a free, prosperous, and healthy life. Find us online at livefreenow.show. And now your host, John Bush. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to another edition of the Live Free Now podcast. I'm your host, John Bush. Once again, bringing you the news, views, tips, and tools you can use to live a free, prosperous, and healthy life. I want to thank you for tuning into uh, the show today. We are streaming live on YouTube, Facebook, and Odyssey as well. And today we are going to be breaking down the ins and outs of the Great Reset Agenda. That is the effort underway by the World Economic Forum and the oligarchs of the world that are uniting to create further centralization, uh, corruption, uh, surveillance. This fourth industrial revolution piece is what I'm quite concerned about, along with it, uh, the central bank digital currency, social credit score system. But we're going to be joined by a, a really cool guest. I follow him on Twitter, and he has these really thorough, in-depth threads. That's his whole phenomenon now. On Twitter, I don't know how long it's been going on. I just really got into Twitter more recently, but it's like a long series of tweets that breaks down particular topics. And uh, this guy Jackson's got some really good info when it comes to the Great Reset, central bank digital currencies, uh, the social credit score system. And he has a really great, uh, simple way of explaining what's going on. There's a whole lot of information coming out of this agenda, and it can be pretty overwhelming kind of like a fire hydrant just spraying you in the face with information. But Macro Jack here has a great uh, talent for making it simple and consumable, which I think is important. But we're going to frame this conversation in a way that we're going to understand what's going on, not just for the sake of knowing or like showing off to our buddies that we got all this great info, but rather providing solutions. Let's understand the problem so we can strategically understand it so as to navigate around it and opt out of it. Uh, and we're also going to talk about one of my favorite topics, which is Bitcoin. Bitcoin provides a solution to so much of this in so many different ways. So uh, on top of that, I want to invite you to join us for the Greater Reset that's taking place January 18th through the 22nd. You can find more details, find our entire list of incredible speakers at thegreaterreset.org. That's thegreaterreset.org. And finally, uh, the Live Free Academy, which is my company. We help people create more freedom in their lives. We are going to be doing a whole big, giant workshop. It'll probably be like a three-month intensive workshop series uh, on prepping you to overcome this CBDC, Central Bank Digital Currency System. So if people want to stay up to date on the latest news and announcements regarding our effort to empower people so they can opt out of the CBDC system, uh, you can sign up for updates at livefree.academy slash CBDC. That's livefree.academy slash CBDC. All right, without further ado, let's bring on our guest, Mr. Macro Jack. How are you? Hey, John. Thanks for having me on. I'm doing great. Nice to see you. Excellent, excellent. So, can you just start by introducing yourself to our audience and maybe sharing a little bit how you how you learned about all this crazy stuff? <laughs> sure thing. Um, so, I I'll start with a um, just kind of a background on uh, my education and my uh, professional life and kind of Bitcoin, which is really the lens through which I've um, come to understand kind of the bigger picture here. So, uh, really, uh, for Bitcoin, for me, I, I first heard of it back in 2017. Um, as I think many people have, it was, I think, August of 2017, the price was about 3000 or $4,000 per Bitcoin. 
um, a friend of mine had told me about it and um, I didn't really know too much about it. I bought a very small amount of Bitcoin um, and I kind of watch it go all the way up to about $19,000, watch it come crashing down. Um, you know, these kind of these uh, cycles that we're all uh, fairly familiar with now. Um, and then I really started to read more into it in 2018, 2019, began accumulating more Bitcoin um, at those cheaper prices of about somewhere from 3000 to $10,000, depending on um, that time frame. Uh, really, uh, an article I like to plug a lot is the bullish case for Bitcoin. Uh, it's a great kind of beginner piece that's not very technical, that explains um, why it's important, um, just kind of the history of money, corruption of money, all that good stuff that is uh, really essential to understand why Bitcoin is a, um, a solution to the corrupt monetary system. Um, and then really, I, I was working professionally in, in traditional finance, which I actually still do um, currently. And then really 2020 is when uh, everything kind of clicked for me. Um, I was living in New York at the time in the city and uh, again in traditional finance. And it, really the just the lockdowns and kind of the more authoritarian measures that were taken uh, that year um, were a little bit unsettling to me. Uh, well, maybe more than a little bit. It was unsettling to me and it was also frustrating um, having worked in traditional finance at um, to kind of just see what was characterized as the K-shaped recovery where um, businesses were being shut down, Main Street really got crushed, people's livelihoods were destroyed um, by government intervention um, due to kind of COVID-19 measures. Um, meanwhile, uh, a lot of Wall Street firms kind of had a record year. So it was this divergence between um, the real economy and how people were actually doing and kind of this um, kind of Wall Street uh, and this more, like I would say, elite banking class that uh, did very well. Um, and most of the people haven't recovered to the same uh, kind of level of prosperity or quality of life that they had post or prior to COVID. And um, that's really uh, kind of what opened my eyes to everything. And really in the past two years, I've just been spending a lot more time understanding these bigger trends. Um, and uh, just... I've been doing a lot more writing uh, to kind of explain all the information that I've gathered and, and how I'm thinking about it. Right on. Yeah, there's a lot of people that, quote unquote, woke up with all this COVID stuff. So I think it's pretty sweet. Uh, I'm a forever optimist and I like to strategically choose what I focus my attention on. Uh, but so I choose to focus on the fact that this COVID stuff and this great reset stuff, in spite of it being you know, we're facing some pretty ugly things taking place in this world. It did awaken a sleeping giant. And there's all sorts of great folks that have all a lot of talent and a lot of passion that are now like, well, we need to do something about this. So so I appreciate that for sure. And I'm glad. Uh, welcome to the team, the free team, freedom and truth. Right. It's a good, good place to be. <laughs> we're going to be on the right side of history. OK, cool. So uh, like I said in the introduction, you do these great threads that have to do with the Great Reset, central bank digital currencies, crypto. Uh, you had a really good one on like digital serfdom, which I thought was pretty cool. Mm. So uh, maybe you can just start by sharing your understanding of the Great Reset. And then I really appreciated how you pointed out like there's three control vectors, food, energy and money. So can you break down for the audience your insights on what this Great Reset Agenda is all about and with the focus on how it's going to affect people? Sure thing. So, yeah, I, I um, 
I'll really just start kind of at, at the beginning. I'm sure most of your listeners are familiar, but really the Great Reset is kind of this term that's been popularized since, uh, certainly since 2020, perhaps maybe a little bit before that. Um, and it was kind of this ideal that has come from the Davos class. So like World Economic Forum, uh, central bankers, kind of um, some Fortune 500 executives, like this, this group of uh, individuals who are kind of more in the know than I would say the common, uh, common man. And um, this Davos class, um, really Davos, just this uh, place in, in Switzerland, a nice destination where everyone meets up uh, on an annual basis and kind of uh, this ruling class thinks through uh, what they would like to uh, imagine the future to be. So the Great Reset is um, has been described uh, by Klaus Schwab, who's the founder of the World Economic Forum, to be um, reshaping the recovery post-COVID-19. So... It was certainly a little suspicious to me that uh, it was only a matter of months um, once this virus kind of was taking hold, uh, that there was already this kind of like solution that was being presented, which was the Great Reset. And um, kind of on the surface, I think it sounds fairly unassuming to people who maybe you know don't pay too much attention or uh, maybe have more trust um, than someone like uh, me or you do in, in institutions. Um, and they kind of use this great reset to push for, uh, let's let's say, like um, stakeholder capitalism is a big term there. So meaning that companies shouldn't be focusing strictly on their profits, but more so a broader group of stakeholders that could include not only their shareholders, but also, um, but also like maybe their local community or the environment. And the environment's a big thing that we're going to get into uh, in this discussion today. So effectively, this Great Reset, just kind of to tie things back together, is an ideal that um, this uh, World Economic Forum, bankers, politicians kind of have for the next um, couple of years kind of culminating what I think to believe in 2030. There's a lot of talk of Agenda 2030. So they're trying to reshape um, kind of food, energy, and money, as, as you said, um, kind of tying all these things together. Uh, is the kind of the what I think of as the climate attack vector. So, you know, to kind of take hold of um, these three key markets, there needs to be a uh, a way to kind of force people to adapt to these new sets of rules. So, um, in that thread that you had mentioned, you spoke uh, to each one: uh, the food, energy, and money. And really, you'll notice um, with this great reset that climate comes into play for all three because uh, one for food, there's a lot of push for, um, for uh, let's say like industrial processed food that um, on paper has, let's say to them or, you know, however they tend to measure it to be a lower carbon output. And there's a lot of demonization of animal protein. So just kind of ruminant animals like cows, um, cows, bison, et cetera, you know, foods that uh, our ancestors have eaten for thousands of years, which uh, clearly aren't actually damaging the environment. But anyways, they're using kind of climate to justify changes that are being made at the food production level. For instance, Sri Lanka was a country that was very compliant with ESG, which is some, a whole other thing we'll have to get into. Um, environmental social governance, which is kind of this arbitrary way that um, has been established to kind of rank countries or companies based on their compliance with this agenda. Anyways, Sri Lanka had a very high ESG score um, because they had decided to ban chemical fertilizers, um, you know, which 
on the margin maybe sounds good, right? Like people don't want to eat chemicals in their food, but we've kind of debased the soil so much that they're now reliant on chemicals to actually produce any crop. So when they banned chemical fertilizers to be compliant with ESG, then uh, that actually led to a, a significantly less output of crop and uh, of course, less yield from, of that crop. And, um, and then there ended up being uh, a food shortage and the country had to kind of use all of their reserves to import food rather than they're typically, I believe, net exporters. So it's really this messy thing where countries are trying to keep up with the Great Reset through this ESG mechanism. And really, this, that was just an example of food. But the same thing has happened with crisis in Europe that uh, is likely going to get worse depending on the severity of the winter. And that's really due to just kind of government policy of the past couple of decades that have de-emphasized oil and gas uh, and have instead, and, and nuclear too, which is a, would be, I would consider to be clean energy, but hasn't been um, really emphasized much in policy uh, for these more, what they're determined to be sustainable, like wind and solar. So now there's an energy crisis brewing. Um, it's really important for this kind of great reset that things need to be scarce. Um, you know, there's, you're only able to have control over a population if there's scarcity, if there is abundance, then there's kind of less need for people to rely on their government. So, you know, there may be a level of, um, and there may be a nefarious angle to this as well, where, you know, they're, um, trying to create artificial crises to drive scarcity, to drive people to be reliant on them. Um, and then just kind of to tie this all into the money, you know, we're just obviously uh, at a point right now where inflation is very high across the developed world. Um, it kind of seems like there's a monetary reset going on, which I'd be happy to talk into more detail. But essentially, we're kind of at this point where all these countries are very indebted. There needs to be some sort of way to relinquish themselves of this, of this debt. Um, and inflation seems to be the best way to do that. And ultimately... Um, this kind of leads us to a CBDC where, you know, they're going to have to, through the same environmentalist angle, push these CBDCs that allow them to control um, kind of individual carbon output, um, which is another thing that the World Economic Forum has been talking about uh, recently, too. So that was a lot of information. Happy to uh, kind of maybe take a pause there. <clears throat> Excellent. Yeah, that's great. Great info for sure. Let's... Um... Let's break down ESG because one of the things I want people to understand is how they're rolling this out, right? Like we can ultimately we don't know exactly why, although they make it pretty clear and it's it's self-evident that this is like I like to call it New World Order 2.0 because for the longest time there's been efforts by secret groups and they have secret meetings and all these roundtable groups and they're essentially trying to create a global totalitarian system. Um, and this is the latest iteration. It's out there in the open. And there's all these mechanisms that they're leveraging in order to force this transition, right? In the decade of 2020 to 2030, they're saying it's going to be this great decade of transformation. Of course, 2030, they have all these goals, not just the World Economic Forum, but the United Nations with their Sustainable Development Goals, Agenda 2030, which was originally Agenda 21. Uh, so they have these mechanisms of implementation, and one of them is this ESG concept, which essentially is like a social credit score for corporations. Can you break down what those three uh, letters mean 
and why this is such a powerful means of, of implementation for this great reset agenda. Oh, also, there's some kind of clicking or something. I don't know if it's your sleeves or something touching the laptop or computer, but if you'll be mindful of that. Okay, cool. Sure. All right. Uh, yeah. What? So what is ESG all about? Sure. So ESG uh, stands for Environmental Social Governance, and uh, it's a framework through which um, capital has been capital allocation has been controlled essentially. So in the investment community, ESG has been very uh, has been popularized in the past decade or so, um, and this has been a way for essentially capital to flow rather than for its best use to kind of this like political um, framework that's been established. So environmental would mean uh, investments that kind of that they um, are keeping in mind the environment, which is all very arbitrary, right? Like there's not, um, there's really no way to objectively define each one of these parameters, but there's environmental, there's social, which could be like, um, you know, racial issues or, um, you know, men versus women, like kind of like equality, diversity, that kind of stuff. And then governance, um, which would just be like this other stakeholder capitalism model that we discussed earlier. So really, um, like you said, John, it's kind of a social credit system where social credit would really just be a way to um, a way to control uh, a people or a um, investment or a country through um, establishing these rules that that people must follow. And if they don't follow them, they're punished. If they do follow them, they're rewarded. So ESG is fairly similar where capital is no longer going to its best use, but rather uh, people need to, or not people necessarily, but companies need to, or countries need to have these ESG scores. So they need to make um, implementations based on that framework to then actually get access to capital. Um, so that is uh, certainly an issue. And that's kind of Again, going back to the energy crisis in Europe, um, just th these types of policies, they don't really make sense um, by market forces and they just are, they end up being decreed by, um, you know, like a central bank or a government or a world economic forum. And that ultimately leads to negative outcomes because then there's an imbalance between supply and demand in this case in, in energy. Um, so it is, in fact, uh, a social credit system um, because those who are non-ESG compliant will then not be able to get capital or they will not be able to get access to credit, whatever, equity or debt. And that actually makes it much more difficult to be funded as a company. So it's really just like picking favorites um, at a very arbitrary level. Yeah. And, and that is a, um, that's a classic move. Of course, with uh, public-private partnerships, uh, which is like a fascism light, essentially. Um, so yeah, they, it's it's really incredible what they've set up for themselves because they have the ability to create the money out of thin air from the central bank level, and then they dole that out to the commercial banks, and then oftentimes it's the commercial banks that are giving the loans to the business. And like you said, you, you bring up access to capital lot and capital allocation, which a lot of people overlook, right? And that's really the essence of a free market system and of capitalism. And you know, a lot of people in my audience aren't fans of Elon Musk, but I'm rather fond of the guy. He's not perfect, of course, and he definitely has his blemishes. Um, and it's unique to understand him in the context of technocracy, because in some ways he is a technocrat. Uh, but either way, he talks about uh, allocation of capital and how successful companies and corporations have demonstrated their ability to 
uh, effectively allocate capital. That's essentially receiving resources in exchange for goods or services. And then you take those resources and you invest them effectively and efficiently so as to create more wealth and more value and more capital, right? Um, and in a genuinely free market system, that would, the capital allocation and the incentives and disincentives and rewards in, in the form of profit and then um, disincentives and new information in the form of losses that is a good system for determining where to put your energy and resources. But unfortunately, the state system and now this new ESG stuff totally mixes that up. So it's clear that they have an agenda. And in order to carry out that agenda and in order to build all these new institutions, they're manipulating this system and the creation of capital out of thin air and the ability to dole that out if you meet certain criteria is a pretty sweet tool that they've given themselves. Now, that essentially is going to be uh, just totally taken to a whole nother level when we have this central bank digital currency system. So we talked about how they're trying to control the food supply, talked a bit about energy uh, and the environment. It's part of this ESG thing. Can you talk about how they're controlling money and specifically the role that central bank digital currencies would play in this whole great reset? Because that's something that I'm most concerned about. If they can successfully implement this and people haven't created our counter economic systems on the side, then future generations are in for a lot of trouble because there's gonna be a big control grid built all around us. So what's your take on the CBDCs and how that is going to play into this kind of social engineering? Sure, yeah. Uh, certainly the central bank digital currency is uh, something to be very concerned about. Um, in my opinion, that's kind of how I see the Great Reset culminating, um, you know, through taking control of energy and food markets um, and, and money markets. That can all be tied into uh, a central bank digital currency where uh, I think I mentioned it a little bit earlier, but, um, you know, kind of thinking about the environment and this kind of ambiguous attack vector that exists on kind of human flourishing and, you know, what that means really is. Um, for instance, uh, there's been a lot of talk like on the World Economic Forum website about um, the, there's something called My Carbon. And it, there was an article that talks about how COVID was essentially a test of social responsibility. So, um, you know, people took um, measures, precautions, what have you, that they characterized to be as almost like um, unprecedented or they were like the World Economic Forum almost sounded surprised about how um, how, I guess, manipulated people were throughout this process. And they said now that we've kind of gone through that COVID situation, they believe that people would be more socially responsible uh, in the sense that, you know, people want to um, now be like weary and they want to, um, they'd be more accepting of something like a social credit score. So, or um, of a central bank digital currency with a carbon tracking mechanism. So, Really, to um, kind of get right into the CBDCs and what those are, it's really a direct relationship between a um, individual like myself and a central bank. Um, right now, in the U.S. at least, we have a commercial banking system. So um, commercial banks like J.P. Morgan or, um, or Citi, they exist in between um, individuals or companies and the central bank. There's really not that many um, really the commercial banks facilitate, uh, kind of all the lending, um, that exists in <clears throat> all the lending that exists in the uh, capital markets at the moment. And the idea with the central bank digital currency is to kind of disintermediate 
the commercial banking system. So I would have a direct relationship with the central bank. And, you know, they like to talk about a lot what could be deemed to be positives of this system. So they talk about how, you know, there could be faster or better tech or it could be more secure. You know, there's less kind of points of failure, I guess, at the commercial banking level. And it would allow for stuff like uh, universal basic income to be facilitated. So they talk about what they think would be positives. But of course, what um, they fail to mention are a lot of the um, pretty serious consequences that come from a CBDC system. And you just have to look at China, for instance, that has already implemented a system like this, where it really allows for, um, you know, since it's programmable money, um, which we can talk more about, uh, it allows for, um, you know, allows for things to be built into that money. So that could be like a social credit system, like we talked about earlier. It allows for direct surveillance of transactions. So essentially the central bank would have, and, the, and this would not be anonymous either. So they would be able to see like my name, for instance, my balance with them, you know, how I'm spending my money. Um, and it gives them ability to kind of seize assets or censor transactions. It allows for direct taxation. Um, it, it could also be used to uh, apply negative interest rates to perhaps people with certain net worths. So it allows them what they say to be more precise in their monetary policy, but really it just is kind of a way to further limit financial freedom. Um, and it's just kind of the true weaponization of money. I like to think of it as really money that is not yours. It's, it's a admission by them that, you know, I have a certain balance in my central bank digital currency wallet, but at any time, if I were to say something, you know, if I if I were to come on your show and say something that maybe they disapprove of, and somehow that is um, surveilled or gets back to my account, then perhaps my my money could be confiscated from me, or you know, I wouldn't be able to support a business that maybe has values that are not in align with what a party deems to be important or you know correct. So it kind of becomes uh, very dystopian very quickly. And, and China has already implemented this. So you can do plenty of research online if you just want to kind of get a sense of how it's being used against the public. Yep. It's quite alarming. And like you said, they're able to track, they're able to trace, they're able to control uh, negative interest rates. Like They've talked about that in their white papers. Essentially, let's say that there is a recession or the U.S. is on the brink of recession. They could institute like a 2% negative interest rate, meaning every month or maybe it'd be like an annual thing. Your money is losing its value. They're already doing that essentially by creating new money, of course, but they would create a incentive for you to spend your money, stimulating the economy. It's total control. And when you think about money as like an energy exchange, which I want to get into Bitcoin, right? Bitcoin really exemplifies that, that money is energy. Literally, it takes energy and converts it into these finite digital units of account. Um, but when you think about money as energy and a value exchange and how important economics is in transferring goods and services and doing business with one another, and it really has a lot to do with, with peace and people having fruitful, mutually beneficial relationships with one another. That's what a, a free market and economics is. And it kind of takes that and perverts it completely. So definitely need to be concerned about that. And Bitcoin is one of the solutions. Let's go ahead and get into Bitcoin. You uh, learned about Bitcoin and seem to be pretty fascinated with it. It's a solution to all sorts of this stuff. So um, 
early on, this was a really important question when we were promoting Bitcoin in the early days because people had never really heard about it. Now it's basically mainstream. But will you give me your ele elevator explanation of what Bitcoin is and why it's important? Sure. So um, Bitcoin is, uh, as described in the original white paper, peer-to-peer uh, -peer digital cash. So you know, let's break that down a little bit. So you know, why would it be important? Um, Bitcoin is peer-to-peer. -peer, so that means that it's, you know, I can send you Bitcoin directly without any trusted third party or intermediary. Now, why would that be important? That's important because um, let's take a look at, I think it was earlier this year with the Canadian truckers and GoFundMe, you know, um, again, kind of going back to social credit and CBDCs, when you have to rely on a third party for a transaction and there are there's willingness to kind of weaponize the financial system, then uh, there's a there's a chance that your transaction could be censored. So uh, we've seen an increase in financial censorship. Bitcoin, um, by being peer to peer, kind of de-risks that. Um, and then you've talked about a little bit, John, but um, you know the the fiat system at the moment is constantly devaluing the currency. Um, it was extremely clear in 2020 and 21 or in the US, I believe they increased the money supply by 40% in just two years. So Bitcoin um, is there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin. Um, the code is open source that has been verified by thousands, tens of thousands of people. Um, and you can run a node and you can kind of see, um, you can see transactions happening. Um, and it's all very transparent. And you know, why is that important? Again, because you're able to store your time and energy in a money that cannot be devalued uh, at the whim of a politician or central banker. So really it's important to me for financial sovereignty. It gives me the ability to hold my own wealth without having to hold that in a bank and have to worry about potentially not being able to access that money or you know have that money be devalued overnight by some large government spending program. And it also allows me to support directly people uh, without having to kind of go through any third party. And I think, I'm not sure where a lot of your uh, viewers are from, but it'll become more and more clear, I think, as we continue on this decade, just the importance of Bitcoin. Um, I think it clicks a lot quicker for people in the, oh, let's say, the emerging markets because they're more used to totalitarian governments that have uh, inflated the money supply or even hyperinflated the money supply or confiscated money. And unfortunately, I think that's kind of where we're headed. And Bitcoin kind of gives you the ability to take ownership of your money and uh, protect yourself from kind of these out of control uh, central bankers and governments. I'm with you 110%. Um, let's hit a comment here. Red Flyer Media, who's an incredible human being, and I'm so glad that she follows and watches live because she does a incredible video work whenever we do great events. But she says, uh, how does crypto mining electrical use conflict with the use of central bank crypto control and the whole ESG? So I'm not exactly sure yeah. exactly what she's asking, but maybe uh, let me clarify that just based on what I think she's asking. Can you explain the difference between cryptocurrency and central bank digital currency? Because it's a misnomer, basically. CBDCs are not necessarily going to be cryptocurrencies, and they're not necessarily going to use blockchains, although some of them likely will if they were smart. Um, and then secondly, 
it seems like a weak point now that everybody's all obsessed with environmentalism. And of course, we saw Elon Musk both drive the bull market with the great price increase in 2020. It wasn't only Elon, of course, but when he announced that they were holding it for Tesla and you could buy Tesla with Bitcoin, that really catapulted the price only for Elon to contribute to the bear market when he said they were concerned with environmental issues. So it seems as though with all this emphasis on ESG and environmental controls and carbon output, because of the proof of work, which I'd like you to explain too to the audience, uh, and a lot of energy use, which isn't necessarily true, but let's face it, there's a lot of energy being used. That doesn't mean that's necessarily a bad thing. But in the context of ESG, uh, it could be a point of weakness, an attack point against Bitcoin. So, yeah, to start, what's the difference between Bitcoin slash cryptocurrencies and CBDCs? And there's some similarities. And then how do we overcome this manufactured crisis having to do with carbon output and energy use? Sure. Um, thanks, Sean. And thank you uh, to I forget your name, but thanks for asking the question. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, so let's start with BTC versus crypto. Um, I am one to really only buy Bitcoin. Um, I, and the reason being is there's a lot of, I guess to put this very simply, like there's a lot of coins that exist out there um, and it's becoming more and more clear that the SEC and other regulatory bodies are viewing um, a lot of these other coins to be securities, unregistered securities. And the difference between Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies is Bitcoin was created anonymously by Satoshi Nakamoto, which um, in, uh, in in blog posts and white and um, kind of the early days of Bitcoin, he referred to himself as as him, but perhaps it could have been a group of people. Um, no one really knows. But that's actually very important because if you think about this, there's really no central point of failure in Bitcoin because there's not a known person in the physical world who is effectively like CEO of Bitcoin, right? There's no person that could be co-opted by a government or a central bank. Whereas crypto, that isn't necessarily true. Like you think about the second largest cryptocurrency by market cap, Ethereum, um, Vitalik Buterin is kind of the founder. He's the founder of Ethereum. There are a lot of people who are prominent in kind of the development that are also uh, known as well. And that, um, to me, sounds kind of like a company uh, that is running a cryptocurrency. And then we'll have to talk about proof of work and proof of stake. But, you know, that's a big distinction. Um, I think, and it sounds like the SEC agrees, that Bitcoin is essentially digital property. And there's more scrutiny on these other cryptocurrencies that perhaps could be classified as unregul unregulated securities in the future, which would be a huge risk to them. So I only buy Bitcoin. In the past, I bought another tokens like several years ago, but at this point, I'm Bitcoin only. <clears throat> and then for central bank digital currencies, um, it, it's kind of up for debate exactly how those will work, but they're extremely different than Bitcoin because, again, kind of going back to what we discussed earlier, they are um, controlled by central banks. Um, so it's really not that different from the monetary system that exists today. It's just giving them even more um, power and control directly over the supply of money and, um, and the direct kind of monetary policy that we talked about uh, directly with individuals. So, you know, that's a state-issued money. It's really just kind of like 
the next iteration of fiat money. Uh, there's really not much differences aside from the fact that it's uh, will be able to be weaponized even more so than the financial system today. And then Bitcoin is um, obviously private uh, crypto asset. Um, you know, not not influenced by central banks. Um, the supply of Bitcoin again is fixed. There's an issuance schedule, so every four years the the new supply of Bitcoin that is mined. Uh, decreases by half. So it's kind of like the monetary policy is already set. It cannot be influenced by central banks. So those are some of the differences there. Um, and then kind of transition to proof of work and what does that mean? So let's think about quickly gold, uh, which is money for thousands of years. And why was it good money? Because it was hard to find and it stored value well over the long term. And that's very important for a good money to be able to store value. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, so, and, and and because it was it was able to store value because one hard to find. Two, uh, there's a lot of cost in producing that gold, refining that gold, and that's the same kind of thing that's happening in Bitcoin. Except you know we're not extracting metal from the ground. Um, these these computers, uh, which are called ASICs, are used to mine Bitcoin, which is essentially producing, using energy to produce lottery tickets to try to win the next block and add that to the blockchain. So um, it's a similar system where there's a lot of, uh, in this case, electricity that's being used to um, mine the next block, which would uh, include transactions in the blockchain. So essentially it's this ledger, ledger that's secured by electricity through the mining process. And in order to add a new block roughly every 10 minutes, there's energy expended um, by all these computers, these miners across the world, um, similar to gold miners that are expending a ton of energy and work to dig up that ounce of gold. Um, and that's really important because, you know, with the fiat monetary system, we know that money can effectively be produced for nothing. And when that's the case, it will be. And we do see that time and time again, that the, uh, the money the continues to be debased and devalued. <clears throat> and then I think one final thought here, ESG and Bitcoin. Um, it's already pretty clear. Uh, the, the White House is already kind of looking into the environmental impact of Bitcoin, and they're not going to have a favorable position on it. I can almost guarantee you that. So they will use the same kind of rationale and um, ESG attack vector that they have in other areas on Bitcoin as well. Um, the, I, I believe it's the Office of Science and Technology of the White House that is doing research right now to determine if Bitcoin is bad for the environment. And I can make a very strong case that it's not, and we can talk about that if you'd like, John. Um, but essentially they are looking into the Bitcoin mining impact on the environment, which is essentially, they're trying to measure the amount of energy, electricity that's being used for this. And I bet that they will, they will have an unfavorable position on it. They'll say the proof of work is bad. They'll wanna to move to proof of stake. Um, so, you know, just kind of expect if you own Bitcoin, it's not going to be kind of an easy ride, but um, ultimately all they have is kind of deception and lies on their side and um, that there's, they're just going to have to keep spinning up narratives to try to kill this thing. Right on. Yeah. And it's important to know for folks if they're investing, you know, what some of the potential weaknesses or downsides are. So, uh, like you said, that's definitely an attack vector. And there'll be a lot of propaganda and misinformation and disinformation put out about it. But at the end of the day, what makes Bitcoin special is the proof of work. 
And now we're seeing fewer and fewer cryptocurrencies out of the 9,000 plus alternative cryptos that are out there. Um, there's fewer and fewer that are doing proof of work. Of course, proof of stake is more manipulatable as we see with the Ethereum experience now. But, you know, I'm, um, I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself a Bitcoin maximalist. Maybe I'd be like Jack Spierko. He now calls himself a shitcoin minimalist. So, um, <laughs> but I do agree with you when it comes to investing, right? So I've been teaching people about Bitcoin for eight or nine years now. And when it comes to an investment as in building wealth or protecting wealth, I agree. I think Bitcoin is the way to go on that front. Uh, somebody was asking why not invest in private coins like Monero and Pirate Chain. I personally think that, like I said, I'm a shitcoin minimalist. I've never actually declared that, but it's becoming more clear that a lot of these coins are just falling by the wayside. I was fond of Ethereum and what it represented as far as decentralized computing and DeFi, decentralized finance, which I've engaged in many times. Um, I did a DeFi loan and borrowed against it. Uh, in order to pay for my house, in order to put a down payment on our Tesla, in order to pay, for, sorry, for solar panels on the house and all sorts of home improvement stuff, which is pretty cool. But it's it's clear that it's becoming more controlled with the proof of stake. Um, but that being said, I do think in light of the CBDC stuff, I thought this before the CBDC, that it's important for folks to learn how to use cryptocurrency in commerce and specifically these privacy coins like Monero, especially Monero over Pirate Chain, although I am fond of Pirate Chain and the community Pirate Chain, just because, of course, the transaction is obfuscated and completely private compared to Bitcoin that does have a transparent blockchain. Now, of course, there's some ways around that with Lightning Network, which I'm pretty fascinated with. But um, that's what I would say on that. Are you are you you thinking that Bitcoin's the tool to use for transaction as well in spite of the transparent blockchain? Or are you also fond of, of privacy coins? And like I said, for folks watching, I wouldn't recommend investing in Monero for the sake of investing as in protecting or building wealth. Bitcoin is the number one for that. And that's been demonstrated time and time again, unless you're wanting to hop on a roller coaster ride. But when it comes to transactions, us doing business with one another, when the CBDC system is fully implemented, I do think Monero will be the best tool for that more so uh, than Bitcoin. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's an interesting point. Um, at the moment, I when I transact uh, in this cryptocurrency ecosystem, I do use the Lightning Network. Um, now, ultimately, it's tough to it's predict exactly what will happen with um, CBDCs and Bitcoin. But just kind of to round out this discussion, I, I really think that ultimately the control of money allows the kind of the great reset to be facilitated and there to be um, a control of everything else. So the only thing in my mind that can kind of defund the state's monopoly on money is Bitcoin for the reasons that we just discussed. Um, so that's where I choose to invest my uh, time and efforts. Um, I haven't actually spent too much time on some of these privacy coins that you talked about. Um, so I can't speak to them to uh, I, I can't speak to them with, um, with too much information um, off the top of my head. But you know what I can say is I think that this financial system is kind of they're going to try to push the CBDCs. We'll see how that goes. Um, I think at some point, like the system is just kind of going to kind of collapse upon itself. And I think for those who are kind of positioned in Bitcoin, that is the most likely next monetary system. Um, 
And that's, that's kind of how I, I think about it for myself. Um, I don't really think I need to obfuscate my transactions um, I, with privacy coins at the moment, um, but perhaps there's some, some more homework I need to do there. All right. Well, hopefully don't get added to the list for coming on my show here. <laughs> you may need to someday. That was just such an eye-opener, the Canadian stuff. Like, you know, for folks that have been studying this for a while, we knew what they were capable of and they and they do it with quote unquote criminals and people they deem to be terrorists. But for that was just a wholesale <laughs> shutting down social engineering of people's money. Uh, it's very alarming. And that's what they want to do with ease for every any transaction showing up to the protest with your GPS phone enabled uh, and you could get shut out of your bank account or maybe they just do slap on the wrist to try to deter it or if it rises to a certain level you get shut out completely but that is where uh, where things are going let's before we let you go we're coming up on the end of the program can you talk a little bit more about the monetary reset what exactly would that look like i know you have another great thread and uh, I'll share your Twitter link because you got all these great threads that are really thorough. They're like essays in Twitter form, but they're short and sweet, which I appreciate. Twitter forces you to have these short tweets. And so it forces you to share only what's most important, right? Like the, the big pieces of this agenda. But you have a whole setup on the uh, monetary reset specifically. And you talk about Ray Dalio's long debt cycle. He's got this great mm -hmm. book. Um, Forget exactly what it's called. Maybe you can tell me the name. Uh, I have it, but it really pays out these cycles that empires go through. And there's always a big rise when things are great and glorious and prosperous, but then they get overextended and they create too much money and debt. And then they start to decline. And the U.S. is currently in that decline phase and China's in the rising up phase. But practically speaking for listeners, Folks that are on the come up, folks that don't have a lot of savings, but also retired folks with uh, all sorts of retirement accounts or people that are wealthy and doing well right now. What does a monetary reset look like for the people that might be listening? What would the impact be on your average person? Yeah, so the monetary reset is an idea that um, I've been thinking about and I've seen some other people kind of post similar ideas as well. And it really is kind of ties the chaos that we're seeing all together. Um, you know, people are thinking of an event like COVID in isolation, and perhaps that's not the right way to think about it. This idea of monetary reset is going back to Ray Dalio. Um, there's these long-term debt cycles, which typically last about 80 years or so. Uh, people are very familiar with the the shorter economic cycles, um, boom-bust cycles of about like six to 10 years, but there's this longer cycle where nation states will accumulate a lot of debt. Um, like the U.S. is about 130% debt to GDP at the moment. So they kind of come to this crossroad where nation states are over-indebted and they need to figure out exactly how they're going to relieve themselves of the debt. And that's where a monetary system kind of comes into play here. Um, and the idea is that Let's, let's kind of think through some of the options um, to, to reset the debt, a uh, 130% debt to GDP ratio. Option number one would be austerity. Um, that's just politically unviable. There's no politician that would ever win um, running on an austerity platform. So yeah, we can almost guarantee that's not going to happen. Um, two would be like a, a default or a restructuring of debt, which we see quite a bit in emerging markets. 
um, a country like the U.S., which has its debt in its own currency, doesn't necessarily need to go through an explicit default process because um, there's option three, which would be inflate the debt away. So that's kind of this idea of a monetary reset where we get to this kind of this breaking point. There's 130% debt to GDP. How are we going to get rid of it? Well, we're going to have higher inflation than we will have high, then inflation will be higher than the interest rates on the government debt. So over time that erodes the government's debt position. This is exactly what uh, the playbook that was run after uh, World War II. Um, I forget the exact debt to GDP of the U.S. at that time, but it was um, probably, it was certainly over 100%. I don't know if it was 130%, but it was, it was high. So there's this playbook that's run about every 80 years or so where there needs to be high inflation to reduce the uh, debt. And that's kind of this monetary reset. Um, in the past, it's kind of been justified by wars. So there's always a lot of spending by war. Um, but we've kind of gotten to an interesting point now where there, there's only a certain amount of escalation that may be possible without like, you know, having a nuclear, a nuclear war, which I don't think anyone really wants. Right. So maybe we can think about COVID or um, like a climate emergency or cyber as kind of these new types of wars in the digital age um, to kind of reset the monetary system to justify spending a lot of money to then inflate, inflate the debt away. So that's kind of the idea of a monetary reset. Um, you know, if we are if we are right about that, that means that there's going to be high inflation much longer um, than just another year or two. It will be probably at least through 2030. So again, going back to like a, a Bitcoin thesis, you need to be able to own something that is scarce. Um, and that's why Bitcoin is so important in a high inflationary environment. Um, you know, again, I, I think precious metals are maybe a good way to to protect yourself through this period as well. Um, having you know some real estate or some land is another way too. Essentially, I think that real assets will greatly outperform financial assets. Um, of course, not <laughs> financial advice, but just my take on the situation, um, knowing that the only real way for a country like the U.S. to absolve itself of debt is to inflate that away. Um, so I think we'll ex we can expect to see some other crises come up throughout the rest of the decade that will justify a lot of spending. Um, so just kind of be on the lookout for that. It kind of sounds like from from uh, different things that I've come across, it probably will be justified through again through like kind of like climate or maybe like some sort of cyber program as well. <clears throat> right on. And what do you think about the dollar losing its status as the world reserve currency? And what does that mean for folks that have most of their assets tied up in dollar based investments like the stock market or 401ks? Well, what does that actually look like? It's really tough to say. Um, yeah, I think these things always play out longer than um, some people expect. Uh you know, one development that I think was really big, and there's just been so many things that have happened, a lot of people have forgotten, but the U.S. Um, did decide to sanction uh, Russia's uh, foreign exchange reserves in, um, in, I believe, at the end of February. And that is a pretty big deal because for a while, countries were essentially funding government, uh, U.S. government spending by buying U.S. treasuries as kind of like their savings vehicle. And that um, confiscation of Russia's foreign exchange reserves 
will certainly, they were already kind of buying a lot of gold. They were divesting of U.S. treasuries. But for other countries, there seems to be more, um, there'll be more hesitancy from a lot of these countries like China or Russia in the past who have helped uh, fund or they've helped sterilize is the proper term, uh, U.S. spending. Those buyers may not be there anymore. So it ultimately comes back to oil and, you know, who's buying um who's selling oil, who's buying it, and are they using the U.S. dollar? Uh, I think, you know, Russia as one of the largest oil exporters and China as I believe the biggest oil importer now. Perhaps they start de-dollarizing their trade. So, you know, over time, I do think the U.S. dollar will lose its hegemonic status, but I don't think it will happen uh, in the next couple of years. Even through this, this uh, monetary reset that I was describing earlier, I, I do believe that the U.S. dollar will still yeah, I, I don't think the U.S. dollar would hyperinflate. Um, of course, I could be wrong about that. But, you know, we will start to see the U.S. lose its global reserve currency uh, over the next couple of decades for people who have investments denominated in the U.S. dollar. Um, you know, the dollar will be depreciating, so it will look like investments are going up in value. But in real purchasing power, they may not actually be increasing. So that's why I think real assets are kind of the, the place to be. Um, for the long term to preserve and grow wealth. Right on. Cool, cool, cool. Okay, great. Uh, so I shared your Twitter feed. You seem to be pretty prolific there on Twitter. So for folks that are following along on YouTube, Facebook, and at Odyssey as well, um, we have uh, your Twitter feed there. And then you also have a Substack that I shared. I'll share that again for folks to follow along. But yeah, I'll be following you on Twitter and I'll chime in on your posts and threads. So I appreciate the insight you have. And again, uh, it's a big, crazy body of information and knowledge that's coming out at folks like a fire hydrant just spraying water down your throat. Uh, but Macro Jack here has a keen ability to really break it down, condense it, and make it simple to understand, which I think is important because a lot of people get overwhelmed with all the articles and videos and stuff they find on the internet. But uh, like I said, you have a great way of explaining things. That's why I wanted to have you on today. So I appreciate you coming on and spending some time with us there, Mr. Jack. Yeah, thanks, John. I appreciate it. Um, for anyone who is listening, if you want to check out my Twitter um, and send me a DM, if you have any questions you know, based on what you find there or this conversation we had today, more than happy to help out um, and share my perspective. But uh, yeah, I appreciate it, John. Thanks for the opportunity to come on the show. I enjoyed it. Awesome. All right. You take care. Keep up the good work. Thanks. You too. Bye. Okay, ladies and gents. Lots of really good information, crazy stuff going on in the world. We are trying to break it all down and simplify things here on the Live Free Now show. But again, most importantly, we want to share this information, not just so you understand it. There's a lot of people that just feel all high and mighty because they understand this whole agenda and they can spout out the latest quote or white paper from the New World Order freaks. No, we want people to understand this information so we can strategically navigate around it, so we can opt out of this coming great reset, so we can institute a greater reset, which by the way, I want to remind you once again, the greater reset co-creation, this will be the fourth iteration of our incredible event, is taking place January 18th through the 22nd. January 18th through the 22nd. You can find more information at thegreaterreset.org. Thegreaterreset.org. In fact, let's take you there uh, right now. Uh, thegreaterreset.org. As you can see, we got some incredible speakers lined up. River and Amani, Catherine Austin Fitz, our friend Ash from here at Bastrop, Jack Spierko, Mark Moss, Sayer G of Green Med Info, Derek Bros. 
Uh, you name it, the list goes on and on. Dell Big Tree will be in person in Mexico. Uh, Glenn Meter here in Central Texas. So head on over to thegreaterreset.org. Sign up for our email newsletter so you can stay up to date with everything. But like I said, we're broadcasting live from Central Texas here in Bastrop uh, at the Bastrop Convention Center. That's where we hosted the Excellent Build Land Summit, which was a smash hit. And it's also going to be broadcast from Medellia, Mexico. So this is a really cool event. I've done a lot of events. And I got to tell you, it's rather challenging to do a in-person hybrid uh, online event, an in-person online hybrid event. But when it comes to in-person in two locations, Texas and Mexico, and online, it's quite the challenge. But I tell you what, we pull it off pretty, pretty smooth-like. And uh, you're in for one heck of a treat. I highly encourage you to join us in Bastrop, Texas, or if you can't uh, come here to Texas, definitely consider Modelia, Mexico. You can also watch for free online. Just follow us at thegreaterreset.org. Better yet, sign up for the email newsletter. But if you really want to get the most out of this experience, then I highly encourage you to join us in person in Bastrop or Modelia. There's going to be a lot of really good people there that are looking forward to networking with you, to collaborating with you, to strategizing with you. There's such a strong energy uh, and you can leave that event with tons of momentum. It's just like giving you a boost of enthusiasm and optimism to be there in person for these events. So I highly encourage you to do that. You can learn about the tickets at uh, thegreaterreset.org, thegreaterreset.org. And then finally, uh, Live Free Academy. We are going to be doing some big work in the realm of central bank digital currencies. We'll probably be launching that perhaps in February. But in the meantime, I want you to keep it up with us, livefree.academy slash CBDC, livefree.academy slash CBDC, where you can sign up for our email list to get exclusive updates when it comes to central bank digital currency, insights, analysis, strategy, tips, tactics, you name it. You can sign up for free over at livefree.academy slash 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 CBDC. All right, ladies and gentlemen, this is John Bush with the Live Free Now show. Once again, bringing you news, views, tips, and tools you can use to live a free, prosperous, and healthy life. I want to thank you for tuning in. Please subscribe to the podcast. If you're watching us on YouTube, go ahead and bang on that uh, subscription. Subscribe to our channel there. Or if you're one of the folks watching us on Odyssey, you can also follow our channel. But uh, stay up to date with us and subscribe to the podcast over at livefreenow.show. That's livefreenow.show. Peace and freedom, guys. I'm out. Thank you so much for joining us today.